politically, it doesn't matter as much who women voters really are and what they really care about. What matters is what politicians think they care about and who they are, because that's going to shape the appeals that they make, the policy concessions that they put forward, things that they prioritize on their agenda. If politicians think, boy, the important swing voters are these soccer moms, and these are the things that they care about, right? Charter schools and healthcare and and all this sort of thing, they're going to design policies that way. Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm your host, Jenna Spinelli. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which, as I'm sure you know, gave women the right to vote. Last week, we heard about the early days of women's suffrage and Susan B. Anthony from the She Votes podcast. This week, we are going to approach this movement from a different angle and look at how women have voted over the past 100 years. Our guest is Christina Walbrecht, professor of political science at Notre Dame and director of the Rooney Center for the study of American democracy. Christina and Kevin Corder are authors of the new book, A Century of Votes for Women, American Elections Since Suffrage. Christina Walbrecht, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, excited to talk with you as we reach the 100th uh, anniversary of the 19th Amendment, uh, all about your uh, latest book, A Century of Votes for Women, which is not a century of women voters. Uh, you you make the, the distinction in the book, and I think this is a, a good place to start, that um, there is really no such thing as a woman voter, even though the media and, and and pundits and all kinds of folks have been re- trying really hard, it seems like, to, to create this image over, over the past hundred years, but doesn't quite line up that way if, if you look at, at the data, right? Yeah, it turns out that um, women are as diverse as uh, men are, and that many, uh, well, let's put it this way, that um, while there are certainly um, aspects of women's turnout and vote choice that is distinct, um, they are also just as affected by all the things that men are affected by, their economic situation, their where they live in the country, their religious identities, their other values. Um, and so to speak as if there is the woman voter um, is, is is really impossible. And unfortunately, when it has been used, usually been used to to put forward the idea of of one particular kind of woman voter, usually sort of white middle class suburban mom. And we know that that that's certainly not representative of women voters as a group. Your book kind of traces the the history of, of this this past hundred years, but toward the end you do talk about the 21st century phenomenon of of momism and the, the, the different ways that has has manifested itself. Can can you um, talk a little bit bit more about that, about how that came about and, and how it shaped our our thoughts about women's votes in the, the more recent era? So when you try to think about women as voters, right, uh, kept out of the, the polling places for so long, and, and once they were enfranchised, sort of what, what's going to make them distinct? And this idea of motherhood as being really central to what makes a woman a woman, right, and, and, and what might be their particular 
take on politics, we see throughout this hundred year period and before, right? So um, in the twenties, that's uh, passing bills on maternity health and, uh, and child safety. Um, that's in the forties when uh, candidate Truman gets asked, what do you think about women voters? And he says, as mother goes, so goes the nation, right? Immediately the, the concept comes um, to motherhood. And so one of the things that struck us in writing this book is, is how consistent that language and that assumption is. Um, <clears throat> it is true, we get a little bit of a break from that. And, and here we're in part drawing on the great work of, of Brandeis political scientist, Jill Greenlee, Greenlee who's written about these things. Um, in the 70s and the 80s, sort of in the wake of the second wave of the of, of the women's movement, we get a little more sort of talking about women in, in other sorts of terms. But really, the momism roars back again by the mid to, to late 90s. So it's 1996 when we first get the term soccer mom. And of course, since then, we've had security moms and hockey moms, waitress moms, um, all with that sort of consistent... Um, expectation that motherhood, concern about children, which means education or healthcare or uh, safety against, you know, uh, bad lyrics in rock music, I say as a teenager from the 1980s, right, that these are the things that, that women care about and that motivate their political choices. But at the at the same time, you know, looking forward, we're, we've also seen that fewer and fewer women are becoming mothers. And so, you know, where do you think this this motherhood narrative might go? Do you think it it, it will kind of transcend actual childbirth? Like, or, you know, to to what extent is it actually dependent on that? This is, I think, a really important point and something we try to emphasize in our book, which is. In, in some sense, politically, it doesn't matter as much who women voters really are and what they really care about. What matters is what politicians think they care about and who they are, because that's going to shape the appeals that they make, the policy concessions that they put forward, things that they prioritize on their agenda. And so if politicians think, boy, the important swing voters are these soccer moms. They're white, they're middle class, they live in the suburbs, they have children at home, um, and these are the things that they care about, right? Charter schools and healthcare and, and all this sort of that thing. They're going to design policies that way. As you mentioned, and as we argue in the book, the percentage of women who have those any of those set of uh, characteristics uh, was never a majority and has only declined um, over time. And so when we do that, we're missing out on women of color. We're, we're missing out on appeals to older women, to women who don't have children, to single moms, to uh, the interests of professional women or women on welfare or, you know, you name it. Um, and so this, this framing of, of who women are is, is really politically important and, and politically powerful. Looking forward. <laughs> um, I think the image of women as primarily mothers is going to be hard to shake. I think women's experience as mothers varies enormously. Um, I'm going to be very interested to see what I expect to be the very long-term consequences of uh, this pandemic, um, which, as many people have rightfully noted, um, impacts women um, 
all women voters uh, differently than it than it does men. Um, women are over overrepresented as healthcare workers. They're dramatically overrepresented as school teachers. Um, they're more likely to have lost their jobs, and as we all know, are bearing much more of the weight of um, you know schools being closed, um, etc. And and so in it will be interesting to see how women themselves, how the press and how politicians think about who women voters are uh, in the next decade. So where, if if you, you've said that this kind of perception has been, you know, largely driven by what politicians or, you know, who politicians think women are, what they think their, their priorities are. So where are they getting these these impressions from and and did has that changed at all over over the the course of the the, the past hundred years so one of the reasons we wrote this book is that our our first one was about how women voters uh, how women voted in the 1920s and 30s and one of the observations in that book is that there's a lot of conventional wisdom about these first women voters and it seems very sure of itself but when you go and look, there's almost no good data about how women voted in the 20s and 30s. We used some statistical uh, methods to, to model that, but there were no good surveys, et cetera. And then what struck us as we started thinking about the 100 years was even as the data gets so much better, we start to have Gallup polls in the, in the mid-1930s, the American National Election Study um, comes on board in 1948 and 52, you know, by the 70s, there's a million polls, Pew, you know, you name it, right? But still, these stereotypes show up in how academics, how the press, how political consultants view these data, right? So um, in the 1950s, um, the assumptions that are coming out um, from scholars, you know, who just see, oh, um, women say they discuss politics more in their families uh, than men do. And what they conclude from that finding, which is literally, who do you talk to about politics is, well, this is because women don't really care about politics and men are telling their wives how to vote. Um, uh, women trust their husbands. Uh, men see it as their role to to guide and tell women what to do. There's no actual survey data to support those claims. There's no questions about trust. There's no questions about who tells who, um, but our basic understandings of what a what a household looks like, um, what are proper gender roles, come come into that. Now it's easy to say those those were the Mad Men days, and and what can you do, right? The these uh, male political scientists were were just biased, but I would leap up to 2016, and I would say all of these people saying there's going to be this giant gender gap no way women are going to vote for this Republican candidate who has said these terrible things about women and has been credibly accused of doing terrible things to women. The women will recoil against that, right? And the underlying assumption there is that women's womanhood will be more important than anything else. The gender gap in 2016 was not exceptional. It really wasn't. Um, and the truth is there was a bigger swing among um, less well-educated white women than there was among uh, the less well-educated white men who have gotten all the credit uh, for electing Donald Trump. Uh, and so definitely a takeaway is, you know, always check your biases that, you know, how we even see good data that's available to us now, well done scientific polls, is going to be shaped by 
a lot of unspoken assumptions that we have. Yeah. And I think that that even goes all the way, you know, all the way back you to when the, the 19th amendment passed. I mean, you were saying before how, how hard it was to even count women voters or to have any data on them. But there was also, despite that, that lack of data, a, this, this notion that because women didn't meet some expected threshold of how quickly they turned out to vote or their behavior didn't change quickly enough that the whole movement was kind of deemed a, a failure, right? Or just at, at least not meeting meeting expectations. So it seems like women have kind of been, have had like the, the decks stacked against them from the very beginning. Yeah. And actually failure is the exact right um, word we talk about in the book. And when I present on this work, I, I, always show all these headlines from Good Housekeeping, from the Washington Post, from Harper's, um, all asking the question as early as 1923 and 1924. So women have had, you know, um, the 19th Amendment just covered one presidential election so far. Was women's suffrage a failure? And they meant really two things. One is not enough women turned out, right? So the size of the electorate, even though we don't have good polls of asking people about turnout, we can tell that this, the number of people who turned out has not doubled. Uh, and the assumption is that that whatever downturn that is, is, is all caused by women who aren't turning out um, as we expect them to do. Um, and then the other is the, the vote like their husbands um, conventional wisdom, which is incredibly popular, really dominant in the 20s and 30s, and even through the 40s and the 50s. Um, by the early 60s, you start to get people like Gallup saying, maybe it's no, we can no longer assume women vote like their husbands. But uh, when you challenge the, con when you when you have to challenge a conventional wisdom, you've sort of established that it is the conventional wisdom. And so I guess I'd say two things about that. One on vote choice is um, I also vote the way that my husband votes. And we actually know that that's quite common. Whether or not that means that my husband tells me how to vote or that we have similar experiences, similar values. Um, in many cases, married couples, of course, share a religious identity, a class identity, et cetera, uh, is, of course, probably more important to explaining the fact that married couples uh, vote similarly uh, than men telling their husbands how to vote. And on turnout, you know, one of the things we try to emphasize in the book in the 20s and the 30s is in some places, women's turnout was really low. In Virginia, less than 10% of women turned out to vote in 1920. In Missouri and Kentucky, actually, it was more than half of women in the very first election in which they were able to participate. More than half of women showed up to vote. And, and what that tells us is we act as if women's turnout must just be a function of whether or not women are political, they care about politics if they want the vote. But actually what the difference is between those places are the electoral laws. Women in Virginia faced poll taxes and literacy tests and the competition. You know, Virginia wasn't very competitive. These were the solid democratic South, whereas Missouri and Kentucky were very competitive. It turns out parties and candidates will try to get women to turn out if they need every single vote. How did women's kind of pivot from this? Okay, like we've, they've been working for 70 years to get the vote. You know, 1920 comes, they, they, they get it. But now there's this issue of actually getting women 
to the poll. You know, were there new groups that that were more voter turnout focused or was it some of the same mix of people or, you know, what did that kind of progression look like? So this is some of my my favorite stuff to to talk about and and is relevant, I think, for thinking about democracy today in that it, it still takes effort to turn the 19th Amendment into actual ballots for women. And that effort mostly happened at in sort of civil society, um, because the government does not actually have, there's no affirmative right to vote. The government doesn't have to make it easy for or ensure that, that you're able to vote. Um, and so the National American Women's Suffrage, excuse me, Women's Suffrage Association, the largest uh, and oldest suffrage uh, organization in the United States, before ratification, a few months before ratification, disbanded themselves to form the League of Women Voters for exactly this purpose, right? To um, help with um, voter education, voter mobilization, and voter registration. This played out in, in lots of ways in different communities. And so we have examples, newspaper examples, where, you know, the day of ratification, uh, the local suffrage group reaches out to the mayor or the election board and says, we want to help. Like, we'll we'll be volunteer registrars. We'll, you know, reach out and and, and go out to groups. We see at state fairs that the league and, and other groups um, are holding, are, are putting up like pretend voting booths so that women mm-hmm. can go in and see how do you pull a lever, right? How do you fill out a ballot? Um, whatever that might be. Newspapers have ongoing columns, again, just about the practical aspects of voting. Um, the states themselves varied a great deal um, in how they responded to this task of dramatically expanding the eligible electorate. And so um, we have some great examples from Massachusetts and Connecticut, where um, I always like to quote the the, the Boston uh, Board of Electors uh, report for 1920 is is pretty passive aggressive. You know, we had to open these extra days. We did special nights. We hired more registrars, right? We, we, we really need you to see how hard we work to make it possible um, for women to vote. Lots of uh, places, uh, again, I'm thinking of stories in Connecticut, where polling places were given uh, more voting booths or uh, where they'd only voted in wards. Now they were going to vote in precincts. So there'd be more places, right? Given the demand, the, the more people coming to the ballot box. On the other hand, there were at least four Southern states that had, among other things, uh, registration requirements that said you have to be registered to vote six months or longer uh, before the election. This was a common way, again, to try to hold down uh, voter turnout. And those four Southern states said, yes, it's the end of August and the 19th Amendment has been ratified, but you guys missed the registration deadline. So you can't, women can't vote here in 1920. They'll have to wait until 1924 to vote in a presidential election, right? So political will makes a makes a big deal. Other mostly Northern states that also had long registration deadlines called special sessions of their state legislatures and said, we're gonna expand women's registration, you know, into the middle of September or, you know, early October, whatever it was. Um, and I think we're seeing that again today, right? That um, voting is really a state level um, uh, function. States vary dramatically in their interest in opening up polling places to, to everybody. 
you also talk about um, some of the issues that that have motivated uh, women voters. And, and, and one thing that has been consistent pretty much from the beginning is this notion of, of equal pay. It was, you know, mm-hmm. part of part of the, the platform, in, you know, back in the you know, 20s. And it's, it's still something that's that's talked about today. It's a great argument, right? Who is against equality? Who is against the idea that if two people do the same job, they should be given the same pay? And, and the reality of sort of unequal economic standing in the United States is, is that it's certainly unequal pay, but it's also you know, more complicated uh, than that in, in lots of different ways. And indeed, the, the irony is that while candidates um, often raise these sorts of issues, whether it's position on the ERA in the 1980s or position on abortion in the 1990s, um, whatever it is, we don't have a lot of evidence that this either mobilizes women or explains their vote choice. And and the reason is that on most of these sorts of women's issues, there's actually women on both sides, abortion being a, a key example. And more generally, it, it turns out that the dominant issues for women voters, the things that they uh, vote on, vote that kind of affect their vote choice, are very similar to men. They're the state of the economy. They're the question of what government should be doing. Uh, should be doing more? Should be doing less? Um, concerns about foreign affairs, um, et cetera. And so I don't think any candidate cannot speak about these sorts of issues. There remains a great deal of inequality in the conditions of, of women's lives. And certainly government has had a huge impact on that. But it's interesting to watch for 100 years, candidates try to sell something very specific to women and it actually not be that successful. We've been talking a lot about the the difference between men and women when it comes to, to turnout and and uh, voter behavior, but there's there's also uh, some other things at, at, at play here, as we said at the very beginning. That you know, women are are not not a, a monolith that way. There's also you know racial identity and, and and education level and you know all kinds of other other factors that play in here. What kind of trends do we see there about how? Um, some of these other identity factors influence uh, both turnout and, and also partisan uh, preferences, which I know is something that you you also go through in in, in quite a lot of detail in the book. Yeah, I, I would emphasize um, two things. One on race. What's fascinating there is that um, we know that African American voters in general, and especially um, uh, Black women voters. Um, overwhelmingly support the Democratic Party. Um, We know that white women, on average, are more likely to vote Republican than they are to vote Democratic. Um, And the gap between them, you know, if I had to pick, what do you want to know about a voter to best guess how they're going to vote? Um, I would not ask if it was a man man or a woman. I would ask um, race. I might ask education level. There's huge gaps. um, between black voters and uh, white voters, for example. That being said, white women are still more democratic than our white men, and black women are still more democratic than our black men. Um, and I think this is often hard for people to put these two things into their head at the same time, right? So it might be that a majority of, of white, it is that a majority of white women vote Republican, let's say 60%. 
but 70, 72, 73% of white men vote Republican, right? And so they're both on average Republican, but women less so than men or men more so than women. So often we talk about the gender gap, this idea that women are more democratic. I think it leaves the impression that all women or most women are democratic. And that's just simply not true when we're talking about white women. It's fascinating that we see that in the African-American community as well, that both Black men and Black women vote overwhelmingly for Democratic candidates, but Black women even more so than Black men. The second thing I want to emphasize is, is what, what I'm really watching these days is um, the importance of education. Um, we know that uh, education sort of as a measure of socioeconomic status has become increasingly important again, in American elections. And so um, on the one hand, I, I just said earlier that the gender gap in 2016 wasn't very big. And so when I present on this, I usually start with, you know, boy, we had this really unusual election, but we got such an, a normal turnout. And then I say, however, this also reminds us of the diversity of women. So it turns out that white, excuse me, yes, that white women with a college education swung to the Democratic Party pretty heavily. Uh, in uh, 2016. That is to say, even more so than they had in 2012. On the other hand, white women without a college education became much more Republican in 2016 than they'd been in 2012. Now, men in less with no college education and with college educations also moved in those same directions, but not nearly to the extent white women did. And so, you know, once again, it turns out when we get sort of under the data, when we start just stop just talking about women and the gender gap, we start to see much more interesting patterns. And so to me, the question for women going into 2020 is, can Trump keep those white women without a college education who um, certainly helped him out in a lot of swing states in 2020? And can Biden keep um, those white women with a college education who already were overwhelmingly democratic, but became even more so in 2016. Sure. And, and there's also the, the question of what extent does, does partisan identity play here? You know, are we at a place now where someone's partisan identity is going to be, if not the most important, then, you know, one of the, the most important factors, you know, maybe going beyond some of some of those things you, you were just talking about? Oh, I, I, I would say partisanship is the most important thing. Um, if, if that's on my choice of, of questions I get to ask, that would be the first one. Um, and we know for both men and women in 2016, 90 something percent uh, women who identified as Republican voted for Donald Trump and 90 some percent of women who identify as Democratic voted for Hillary Clinton. And those numbers are almost exactly the same for men. That, of course, only, in a sense, leads to the preceding question, which is, okay, then why is it that there are more women who identify as Democrats than there, you know, than uh, men who identify as Democrats? If, if you know, that, that sort of sense of party ID is so dominant, um, that doesn't really help us understand voting. It just leads us to the, you know, the question before that. We know that partisanship is uh, a sort of form of identity, like lots of other identities, religious identity, racial identity. Um, it develops young. Um, it's pretty stable over the life cycle, but that doesn't mean it never changes. The other piece of this 
that may be kind of a, a secondary theme in, in the book that you, you touch on from time to time is women's representation. And, and what, you know, I, we have seen, of course, Hillary Clinton, Geraldine Ferraro, and, and then certainly an, an increase in, in the number of, of women candidates and, and, and office holders, you know, up and down government. But it, it has not kept pace with women's voter turnout over over the past hundred years. So where does where do you see this kind of representation piece fitting into the the bigger story about about women voters over the past hundred years? Sure. Um, you know, it one of them is is a sort of reminder that um, when we talk about mass politics, that is to say everyday citizens, the whole population, that's a very different thing than to talk about elite politics, right? So what it takes to get um, people to turn out to vote, which is the most common form of political activity that Americans engage in. They're much more likely to do that than write a representative or go to a protest or other sorts of things. That Voting is just a very common activity. And, and as we've mentioned, uh, for going on 40 years now, women have been more likely to do it than have men. Running for office is a very different thing. Uh, and it's important to start with the fact that most people would never even consider such a thing, right? So getting past that first point where you imagine of all the different options for your life at any point, that one of them might be to run for your school board or your state legislature or eventually for Congress is a mindset that most people don't have. We have really good evidence uh, by people who have said this closely, looking at the sort of um, occupations, for example, where we know candidates for office tend to come, the law, business, education, Women are less likely to say they were ever encouraged to to run for political office, and they're much more likely to think of themselves as being qualified or interested in running for political office. Part of that is sort of the feet, the the loop of of representation, which is where you started this, right? If you look out at the sort of elected officials and they're all wearing blue suits and red ties, and they're white and they're male, that just may not be what you imagine yourself doing. One of the, in another uh, line of research I do with uh, my colleague, Dave Campbell, we look exactly at this sort of role model effect question. And we do see, for example, that when Geraldine Ferraro ran in 1984, and when the first year of the woman happened in 1992, that did get a lot more younger girls interested in politics. And so it feels like in the last couple of years, you know, Hillary in 2016, the huge wave of women candidates in 2018, we're going to see a lot of women candidates again in 2020, that that loop is sort of happening. More people are looking up and saying, wow, that woman doesn't have a traditional background. She's a woman. She's standing there with her kids. Like I can relate to her better. Maybe that is something I could do in my community as well. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Christina, thank you to, to you and, and to Kevin for your collaboration on this book. And thank you for joining us today to talk about it. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Jenna. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 